Today we're going to be having an interesting discussion about the intersection of age and sexuality. And we're going to see it from both spectrum of the youth and the elderly. With me today, I have three amazing speakers who, as usual, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, their pronouns, and what do they do within their organization. Hi everyone, my name is Brianna. I also go by Brie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm actually the co-president of Planned Parenthood Generation Action. We're a UCF registered student organization and we're affiliated with Planned Parenthood. Um, our organization, we promote safe sex as well as consent, as well as empowerment of our bodies. And we advocate for overall health, but specifically reproductive health with everyone, regardless of age, sexuality, and gender. I love it. Welcome, Brianna. And with me today, to my right, I also have... Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Desiree Diaz. She, her, hers. And I am from the College of Nursing. So practice-wise or clinically, I'm a family nurse practitioner. So we go from birth, or as we say, from womb to tomb. So excited to be here today. Welcome, welcome. And uh, to my left, uh, last but certainly not least. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. My name is Joel Figueroa, and I am the president of Impulse Group Orlando. Uh, my pronouns are very flexible. It is, it is up to you. I, I accept anything. And and yes, so our organization, we do sexual health, mental health, mental health and substance abuse, uh, advocacy, as well as social justice awareness. And we just try to do as much outreach in the community as we can. And we will certainly be talking about those resources in a few. Let's start with uh, our typical icebreaker here in the podcast. So can we tell our listeners what beverages are we having today? Sure. Well, I am having a hot cocoa which, you know, I don't think it's ever appropriate in Florida. You know, it just adds to the heat. Well, it's unusually a rainy day today, and it's yes. going to be a cold front hitting us soon. And I had too much coffee, so this is why I opted for that. <laughs> How about you, Bree? I also had too much coffee, but I'm still adding on to that, to the amount from just being a busy student. Never enough. Never, Never enough, enough right? exactly. <laughs> How about you, Desiree? Well, I am envious. My coffee cup is empty. I'm trying to decrease my caffeine, so I'm actually trying to get my water volume in, so I'm drinking water. <laughs> Great. So let's start with one extreme of the age spectrum and discuss sex and the youth. And I'm probably past that definition of youth myself, so I would let the organizations represented here talk a little bit more about it. So age is typically associated with like sexual awakenings, and you will hear some expressions like, oh, uh, the youth is just a big ball of raging hormones. But we can define it a little more as coming out of age, perhaps. We can see it in the media, in the movies, people coming out of age. What does that represent for you? Well... It's funny that you, you bring up the whole coming-of-age story that you do see in a lot of movies and, and books, even on television shows, because I think it's a very American thing. You know, we're, we're so taboo when it comes to talking about sex and, and sexuality that we have to make it into this big deal when we turn 18 or we go to prom and we have to lose our virginity, you know. And when... 
if and when we ever get to the point where we can freely have open discussions about sexuality and gender identity, I mean, I, I think I think you will be seeing a little less of that. Now, are we a raging ball of hormone when we are, you know, 13 to 19? I, I would have to agree. I think I was. Uh, but, but yeah, that's my, my opinion on it. And interesting how we see it, because even like to frame it a little more concretely on our, our, our um, Oscar winning movie, Coda, which was focusing on disabilities and focusing on a family of of uh, people who are deaf. And among the children, they have one who is deaf and one who is hearing. And even so, you can see also a little bit of a story of like sexual awakening as well and like finding herself. But it's also that coming of age kind of theme that we see in the in the media right now. But isn't it funny you use the word coming of age? Right. So why even in the terminology that we're using, we're adding an age to sexuality. And when we start talking about the elderly or, you know, the age I like to talk about the, the undisclosed middle age or premenopause sexuality doesn't necessarily change but the functions of sexuality change and we need to start stop putting an age or a limit on it mm -hmm. now we're not talking about underage and things of that nature but truly uh, that self-awareness of what's taking place of ball of hormones because now men over a certain age are injecting hormones yeah. to get that rage back yes. so just wanted to clarify from and the older aspect. And postmenopausal women, too, as Let's well. Are... <laughs> I, was, I was thinking the same thing, though. I was actually thinking the same I'm thing. I'm Perry. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> So let's talk about uh, circling back to the youth, because we are certainly going to move to the other extreme of life in a minute. But uh, talking about youth, why does age matter when it comes to human sexuality around youth? Well, for me, just to put in a point, I think it's important to sometimes like when we're growing up, like in high school, and middle school, it's like it's cool to have sex. And then from there, it turns to unsafe sex. It turns to trauma, STDs, STIs. So I think it's very important that there has to be like a certain maturity conversation and not just like go free. It can turn into a lot of bad things. Like sex is a good thing, but when it's not given at the appropriate age, it can be very, very difficult and very dangerous, I'd say. An example that I typically give to my students is the idea of a healthy diet when you're finally cooking to yourself you go to college and you're finally prepping yourself is yes this the, the best way to avoid you know gaining your freshman 15 is by <laughs> avoiding carbs and eating healthy here's your toolkit of how you do that but if you're going to go that route like these are other set of tools that if you're going to eat out these are some resources that you can have to avoid that same thing for sexuality the best way to avoid diseases or pregnancy is abstinence but it's proven that if you're not going to be abstinent, here is a whole toolkit of things that you can do to actually stay healthy and stay on track for your goals, right? Yeah, and in this state, which I believe we are an abstinent uh, education state, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that when you do include uh, this basic sex ed class, which is an um, all-encompassing to the needs of the students, you know, when they're, when you're talking about LGBTQ students in particular, then yeah, you have these kids that 
don't know what they're seeking, don't know how to do things appropriately, are putting their own health and lives at risk for risky behaviors. It, it's, I, I wish Florida was different and, and I'm glad that there's so many organizations out there that want to advocate uh, for sexual health, but, but it, really, it really starts in the whole education system. And there's one thing that is super interesting about um, health that I think Brianna mentioned on, and it's the WHO definition of health is the state of... I, I know there's a haiku number one, greetings to my students who have to say it at the end of the, of the first class we have. And health is the state of complete physical, social, and mental well-being, and not only the absence of disease or infirmity. So it includes your physical health, which we have mentioned, you know, here's a toolkit to stay healthy, but it's also, as you mentioned, consent. It's also mental health. It's also finding support on your peers, on your partner. It's also finding a social acceptance of whoever you are and what's your identity. And I think it's greatly framed within that process of discovery. Your teen years are about that journey of self-discovery. And I think that's probably why the media glorifies that coming of age idea that we started with, right? But I think some of that too with self-discovery coming from a practitioner side and mm -hmm. not necessarily just, oh, a mom side, right? Mm -hmm. um, totally dependent Which on- Which you are too, right? I, I am, um, <laughs> I, I am a mom. Full uh, disclosure. Full disclosure, I am a mom. Um, I, an all boy mom, so I, I tend to be totally transparent <laughs> how I think it comes. So um, sorry for all of the, the people that identify as females out there, but I tend to be kind of just raw with, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. in my household, that's how we kind of just did it. And I personally did preach abstinence, but if you're going to choose to do this, this is how you protect yourself, mm -hmm. um, number one. Number two, it, it's a tough conversation that I wish more people would have because you know younger parents, I say to them all the time, do you really think they're going to call you and say, hey, mom, can I have permission to have sex before I do? So you need to equip them prior to being in there. Um, I'll never forget throwing away condoms I found in one of my son's cars. And he's like, mom, I spent, I said, if you can't afford $6 to buy a good quality condom, you can't afford 18 years of finances for a child. He was like, what? I was like, you're going to do what you're going to do, but make sure you know what you're doing. And I think that's an important aspect of it too. It's not just teaching, okay, this is the toolkit. And then someone says, oh yeah, well, I used a condom. Oh, okay. But what kind of quality condom is it? Did you even put it on appropriate? How do you dispose of it? Um, those types of things. Now, I will say it is a sex pod cafe. I'm not necessarily for let's show everyone in sixth grade how to use a condom. I think there's a maturity that, like you said, Brianna, that goes with that. You know, all of a sudden we get these calls. Oh, I have green group, you know, dripping from somewhere. Well, we want to get to them before they have that issue. Um, and I'll, Let's talk about the unseen issues that I see in the youth. Most, a lot of times in the, the youth, herpes, you can't see. If I don't have an outbreak, by the way, self-disclosure, I do not have herpes. But I'm saying <laughs> if I had herpes and I have no open vesicles, no source, you're not going to see it. Even if I, we were having oral sex and you were up close and personal, unless I had a viral outbreak, but you can still catch something. And that is such a misnomer for 
the youth, they don't understand that. Oh, well, no, they didn't have anything. Okay, same thing with syphilis. Um, and where the syphilis sores come out on your palms and your hands, most times you're not exploring that if you're sexually <laughs> exploring and engaging. So I think that's important to note that I think that the youth or the younger population, especially once if they're in a confined home, I'll call it like abstinence period, nothing, you know, not even going to have that. They come to college and they while out yeah. and then it's like, oh boy, now what do I do? I agree with you. Like, I don't think sixth grade, like fourth or sixth graders should not be used, like taught how to use a condom. However, I think like even starting from a young age, they, they can have this certain set of like sexual education that pertains to healthy relationships and um, like knowing your bodies and respecting your own bodies. And then as you get older, like the onset of puberty, that's when the like, like physical sex education should come in. Agreed. And definitely red flags on your body as well, right? Um, if someone's touching you inappropriately, that's definitely a conversation that has to be had early on, even before puberty. And I, I'm not a parent, so I actually never thought about that as a sexual conversation that needs to be had in maybe that sixth to eighth grade, fifth to seventh grade window that, hey, look, this is how people should behave with you and this is how people should not inappropriately behave with you. Um, so that, that's a really good point. That I mean, they've been having oral sex on the middle school bus for years and rainbow parties and things like that. And why don't more parents know what that is? The, the idea isn't don't send your kid on the school bus and transportation. It's educating them on not doing that. It's funny. I actually held a sex ed class last night. And the, the minute I got home, I texted my older brother and I told him, hey, look, whenever you guys are ready to have the sex ed talk with your kids, let me do it. Let me have that. Let me teach that class. And uh, they responded, they were like, well, we think Robert's getting there, so you might want to reach out. <laughs> uh, he's in that like 13 year age, 14 year. Oh, he's long beyond where those parents think he is. Just saying that needed to happen. 12th, eighth grade is the worst, worst year. But but exactly what you were talking about, how, oh, the, the there's this misconception about how you can transfer uh, herpes, HPV, syphilis, mm -hmm. and and then if you're not in this like health uh, industry or, or just know how or, or you you want to seek this information, you're not going to know what to look for. You're not going to know what source to look for. You're not going to know to look for rings on the palm of your hands and your feet and and you know like and why why aren't this is just general education about your health. I, I personally think there needs to be a bigger emphasis on. And circling back to that idea of health being a holistic aspect, right, is yes, your physical health, but also understanding consent, also understanding you have the right to say no to anything that doesn't feel comfortable to you. You have, and, and are we provided with that toolkit of how do I say no in this situation? Isn't it also we, we have to circle back with, I wish there was a basic parenting. Now I'm not saying I was the best parent because God forbid if my children ever heard the podcast. <laughs> but um, that general understanding of some basic parenting, 
you know, when you go back to the fundamentals of, oh, go kiss Uncle Joe or, you know, well, what if I don't want to? Or sitting on the lap. I mean, I came from a strict West Indian home. It was like, no, you're not sitting on anyone's lap. You're sitting right here next to me. I mean, I was attached to my mom on the side. But it's some of those things where when uh, kids shy away, it's like, no, no, go ahead. Give them a hug. It's like forcing um, that. So it's uh, equipping parents to be able to understand and how do you navigate the generational differences Mm -hmm. as well as the flip side to that. We have some children that we see in the office. Well, well, you know, my mom said no one can see my bathing suit area. Okay, but I'm the nurse practitioner. I need to explore. You know, there is a fine line in how do you balance that, but. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also that balance of, again, circling back to that idea of coming of age, right, is is that prefrontal cortex that is developing and you're developing your autonomy and your decision making and you're becoming an adult little by little. But you're also developing that sense of risk taking and that there's consequences to your actions. Right. But you probably don't have a full as 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 someone in their teens don't have that full knowledge of consequences and and decision making. So there's that fine line balancing, saying yes or saying no and consenting or not consenting, uh, but also are there consequences to what I'm gonna do? And that risk taking gets interesting. So can we explore that for a minute? Yes. With break. So when I'm thinking about consent, I'll never forget one of my sons, I think it was the school that won't be named that, you know, he came home, I think after freshman year of college and he was the oldest and he was like, did you know, even if I'm at a party with a a girl, we've both been drinking, it could still be that it wasn't consent. I was like, what do you mean? If you're both there and you're both drinking, how, you know, being educated on that. Um, It can be very, of course, coming from a boy mom, I'm like, protect yourself, you know, have a signed consent before you do anything kind of thing. But a lot of people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. If there's any kind of substance, it kind of negates the consent. And that's where things start to get into that gray area. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, you see that, I'm sure, more. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. And consent can be very difficult. I think a lot of people define consent as differently, like, For example, if a couple is about to have sex, but last minute the other partner starts to say no, it's like, oh, but we've done, like, we've gone so far. Why are you saying no now? It's like consent can be like, get blurry. And it's, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's like, beat them up, exactly. Um, So it's just like, I feel like everyone defines consent differently, but I just think like a basic understanding when you're younger, like, know what you're getting into and always have if you're in a sticky situation where you're at a party have friends have people you know there especially like when you're being vulnerable and you're going to a place where you don't know individuals try to go with a group of friends or not maybe your partner not only your partner but someone as well just to have like a safety net and that's regardless of gender and i i think again you know i was fully transparent of where i'm coming from on some of this Big things now we were talking about before we went live on the podcast is um, social media. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I feel like young ladies don't understand when you uh, send a nudie to the guys or full frontal, does it doesn't matter what it is. If you are under 18, that 
is voyeurism. It is pedophilia. And they can prosecute. Um, and it doesn't matter that the girl sent it. Um, if the parents choose to prosecute, that can happen. And the ramification is on the guy, not the person who sent it. So it's just thinking about all of those things as our population, especially on college campuses, gets younger. So you have these freshmen interacting that might be 17-year-old freshmen with 22-year-old seniors while it's, wow, I have this great body, but what risk are you putting that potential partner in? So... Um, just you know, making it somber moment for us here at the Sex Cafe. Well, well, it's funny because he he kind of triggered something that I I was like maybe I'll say it, but then now you you totally egged me on, and that's in the LGBTQ community. You know, they're already feeling very alone and they can't find other people like them. You know, sometimes it's too conservative and they can't come out. So what do they do? They go to the dating apps and and they'll be 16 they'll be 17 and unfortunately they'll put themselves into these sexual um interactions that aren't developmentally well for them but also is completely illegal and who who do you hold accountable the the applications the the child the adult you know it, it it's just all wrong uh but what do you do? I don't even, I don't know. It's terrifying. I, I've never liked the applications for a number of reasons, but that's one great area that I've always been like, that is terrifying for anybody that's getting into that kind of interaction. Also, we should probably talk about other important psychological effects of uh, sex during the youth years, and that includes teen pregnancy and poor health outcomes. Both, both for the mother and for the kid. So what are those implications that may be either obvious or not so obvious for our listeners? Well, starting off, I think when you're having sex at a very young age and you don't really know what you're doing, you can get STDs and STIs and some are uncurable, so you're kind of stuck with it for the rest of your life and you didn't even realize what you were doing. Um, pregnancy is a big one because chances are, so if you end up getting pregnant and you don't have a support system, your parents aren't available to help you and you yourself are like 15, 16 and you have a child, what are the chances that child ends up in the foster care system? What are the chances that child ends up being abused? What are the chances the mom herself who's 15 years old is being abused by her parents who are neglecting her? It's, it's like this never ending cycle of like mental trauma and could potentially be physical trauma as well. So it's understanding what you're doing and that what you're doing may be cool with your friends. Like, oh, like, yeah, I had sex, but you never know what the long-term outcomes are. So I think it's very important to stress that with the youth starting at a young age. Like, And as you were mentioning, Brie, that, that cycle is very difficult to break. That goes through generations and generations, teen pregnancy and those outcomes. Yes, they're very evident in that couple, right? In that mother-child dyad, but that extends over. The research shows that, that breaking that cycle takes so much work. And let's talk about the cycle related to race and ethnicity, right? It creates it. It's even harder to break. And then we want to know why it's perpetuated that we have single-parent households. Well, if you have an unwanted teen pregnancy and you're 14, 15, 16, 18... 
and it's you already identified this is not someone you want to be with for life but you have to interact with them the the best way that you see or not the best way the most common way is to push the father aside and continue on that's where you see the generational households the mom the grandma all picking up the pieces and then we have the fatherless society that we're seeing the ramifications of in poor health outcomes on the children as well let's talk about the stress of that again being the you know representing that that male side because we only talk about the female side when it comes to pregnancy once that individual that male knows that they've procreated they've birthed they still have to go through a psychological process am i going to be involved how am i going to be involved are we staying together not that's a whole nother added stress level for both both of those parties involved and you are dr castillo's definitely seeing it in in the media on all the netflix shows it's you know these two people that are teens in high school having sex and then one of them gets pregnant like you can see it unfold also but the education piece isn't there how do you manage Uh that stress you know you know uh and i think the biggest aspect when it comes to teen pregnancy is that first of all women are a second class citizen in society that is that is first and foremost well, they're portrayed that way. Not that we are, but that well, they're portrayed that way. Well, they are portrayed that way, but also, like, treated. Right. I mean, it's as far mean. as, well, like, as... Oh, Just... 100%. But, I mean, it's 2022, and we are still at the front lines fighting for women to have autonomy over their bodies. And it that, to me, that's just so disgusting, you know, to discredit women, to not make decisions that will impact the rest of their lives. Um, and I'm talking about pregnancies and I'm talking about abortions. You know, at 15 years of age, at 16 years of age, whether the, the pregnancy was a product of love, uh, abuse, incest, rape, whatever, I'm, that, that is a massive uh, decision that they're gonna have to make. Um, let let them let women make decisions. Absolutely. There's also another important aspect going back to that definition of health on being physically healthy, being mentally healthy, as we just discussed, but it's also socially healthy as well. So as we have seen, there's some poor outcomes socially among both parties who get engaged in a teen pregnancy. But also there's an important conversation to be had about sexual orientation, coming out, homelessness, and all these consequences of people who belong to sexual and gender minorities in these households during that process of discovery. Can we talk a little bit about sexual orientation coming out and social consequences of those in the youth? The LGBTQ community just has the raw end of the stick. Uh, And I I don't know, you can look at it from so many angles, whether it's their religious upbringing, whether it's ethnicity, financial, um, politics, politics, yeah, yeah, socioeconomic status. And that there's, you know, there's higher rates of, mental health issues, whether it's uh, depression, anxiety. I think, I believe last time I checked, um, they're at a 
two times higher rate of suicide. Is it two or four? It's four. Four. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, four times higher rate of suicide than their heterosexual um, peers. peers. You know, uh, homelessness, again, increased for the gay and lesbian community, even more so for the trans community. Um, unemployment. I mean, it, it's we're talking about everything, but again, it's public policy, it's families, um, and that's why these conversations need to be had to change people's perceptions, to welcome these communities. These are your brothers, these are your sisters, these are your friends. You know, don't. Yeah, don't don't say that you love me and then vote against me. You know, that's a great mantra um, to live by, especially here in Florida. I think it's important to think about when you're looking at the LGBTQ plus community. I've done some research with my partners over at Social Justice Department, as well as with the Lavender Council. So really getting to understand some of the healthcare needs, you know, and it is not necessarily lack of access because there are plenty of places to access. However, it's that unfriendly, unwelcoming, feeling when you enter the door, which then creates a barrier to healthcare and appropriate healthcare of what they may or may not need at that time. And that's just so unfortunate. And when we start talking about sexual health, we're talking right now in the younger population, I often say to parents, you know, I'd rather have my kid alive than dead because they didn't feel like we welcome them in the home and you know just getting to the raw facts like cut to the chase i don't care what your religious belief is that is your religious belief but now here is your child yeah. so you don't have to agree with it i'm not saying change your, your whatever that view is but love shouldn't matter if um we're really looking at the community aspect Absolutely. i'm curious in your peers brie your more conservative peers, what do you see as like tolerance as far as the LGBTQ community? So are you talking like at UCF in general? Yeah, at UCF. Okay, so UCF one is a very diverse and accepting community. We're very prideful and stuff. However, there are obviously individuals who believe different things. There hasn't been like a lot of hate towards the LGBTQ plus community, but however, there's like certain people who just don't engage in those types of things like if you see like an orlando pride post obviously some people are just gonna make sure they don't see that on their social media so outwardly i've never seen anything hateful towards the lgbtq plus community and we're very fortunate in that like we do have a lot of resources for them as well which typically we won't see in like a smaller city or town smaller smaller college town so we're just like very fortunate fortunately i have not seen any like real bigotry towards the LGBTQ plus community at UCF specifically, but I'm sure it does exist, but I haven't outwardly seen it. I was just curious to see if her age range, because I'm assuming I'm like 10 years, at least at least 10 years older than her, uh, it was different than my perception since I, I'm 33 and I do see the general public. So I, I hang out with a lot of the progressive groups but then I also have to fight the conservative groups. So I, I see both. So I was wondering if maybe she saw that 
<laughs> those 20 year olds that are just change. like well it sounds like they're more progressive and that makes me happy i think i think there's <laughs> there hasn't been a ton of focus i'd say the main focus right now is like i see a lot of students get in like the topic of abortion right now rather mm -hmm. than like lgbtq plus but i'm sure it's there but i haven't seen it like anytime recently or even like my three years that i've been at ucf fortunately yeah, because you have to think pre-COVID because they haven't really been around to protest, have the yeah. tables and all of those types of things <laughs> also. So, yeah. That is so true. I didn't think about that. Now let's switch gears a little bit to the other extreme of life and let's talk about sex among the elderly. So what are some normal or expected changes that will happen as as age as time passes by right so i think you need to clarify elderly. yes because uh, dr desiree uh, is not elderly no, 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 no. so i'm 49 for the record of whoever you know for another six months or whatever it is um but it is something that's really not talked about sexuality sexuality doesn't change your sex drive might change but your mental sex drive doesn't change. So we'll start with the guys first, right? So over the age of 50, they start to, their drive might start to lessen because of their testosterone level. So you have, I see a lot of guys now coming in, they want their T drawn. What is my T, you know? Um, but not really putting in those other factors. If I'm tired, if I'm fatigued, all of that play exponentially higher effort in that whole sexual activity part. Now, the misconception is men can't have children after a certain age. Oh, they're old. Well, sperm don't die. They don't age out like female eggs. So that's why you have 75-year-old actors having children with these actresses that are, you know, 35. So sperm doesn't die, so they can continue to procreate, which goes into my political thing about they can procreate numerous times, like multiple times a day. You know, once a woman's pregnant, they're pregnant for 10 months, you know, because... <laughs> That, that's what it is. Yeah. So we should really be considering that aspect rather than worrying about how I'm going to manage my my body. But that's a whole nother radical idea. Which actually makes me think of a, uh, motivation. Um, in uh, a, an, an episode that we just recorded but is coming up later after, after this one is posted, we had a conversation about uh, sexually transmitted infections among the elderly. And one of the discussions was precisely the motivations. Once that potential of pregnancy is gone, uh, the, the, the adults are willing to take more risks. You know and STD it's in the villages. Yeah. I was mind blown to hear that the villages actually has the highest rates of STIs mm -hmm. in Florida. And probably, I'm, I'm not saying it's the only explanation, but probably because of there's not that risk of pregnancy anymore. Yeah. So you can lower the bar a little bit. And I, and I, from what I understand, they have a flag system. Don't know if that's true Ooh. on their goal carts. So if there's a purple flag, that means I'm ready and available. Cause you know, there's like no cars or whatever. But I heard that is a, a real thing. Oh, wow. So um, like a flag system. So bringing it back to the 70s, 60s, maybe, I don't know. Oh. But 
so for men, erections don't last as long. Yes, they can still ejaculate, but in their head, it may seem like their sexual experience is longer than it actually is. So you see a lot of disconnect in that middle age mm -hmm. with the men and the women because the women, and I'll talk about that in a minute, what's happening with them, it takes them longer to arousal and climax mm -hmm. versus the younger time. So the timing is off as you get into that middle age. And then with women also natural progression is the lower estrogen. So then there's more vaginal dryness, which then creates, you have to have more foreplay, which is a longer time because then the partner might not last throughout the whole experience. So in that age group, when you start talking about sexuality, they really have to come to a new sexual awakening because it's not oh we're gonna climax together of like what you want to do in your 20s and 30s or whatever i'm not gonna age myself out or put myself there anywhere um but it's okay well you have to understand that well it is the sex podcast i mean so we have to talk about it so um you might have to have more foreplay with more props coconut oil whatever lubrication but then also know for the guy, you have to, okay, you're gonna meet climax before your partner. You just can't roll over, you know, you it's you are quicker, but they're longer. So that is where you see a lot of disconnect too and at that age. And again, there's also part of partnership, right? Yeah. When you are with someone, it's part of that dialogue and that negotiation. One of my favorite sex educators, Al Vernacchio, if you're listening, kudos for your for your TED talk and he says that actually sexual negotiation is like ordering pizza mm -hmm. he says that he he hates the concept of sports and sports analogies in sex because there's always a winner and a loser and he's right so that's that's why he uses that pizza analogy and he says if we are ordering pizza we need to come together into what do we like what we dislike why are we willing to compromise do we want it half and half do we want the usual are we feeling adventurous do we want to try something new but i think that's what plays into the difference between the older sexual experience or the mature sexual experience versus the younger because i mean i've been married 33 years so having that discussion is so much easier. Like, oh, man, that, that didn't work like that. Normally I was like, what's going on? Versus if I'm now single and trying to say, oh, well, okay, that's not working for, you know, it, it creates much more tension. So um, oftentimes women don't discuss sexual health in that middle age. It's called perimenopausal for all of you. I tell my sons, I don't care. I'm going to tell you what this horrible phase of life is because one day you're going to be a spouse. So I educate not just my husband, my husband, but the my three sons too because no one talks about it. Like, this is happening. Like, don't ask me about cramps because I'm going to tell you it's horrible. It's sporadic, you know? And having that discussion because when the estrogen levels change in the women so in your mom you'll notice all of a sudden they're way more moody up and down migraines it is true physiological something whereas though that's what they call it like right now i'm having a major hot sweat and want a fan but you know. <laughs> 
I'll let you talk about the male experience while I find. Can I have that yellow thing to fan, please? <laughs> no, no, no. So, yeah, perfect. I'll you know have my own little uh, summer storm right now. But you. Got <laughs> so I have a question for the younger uh, generation represented here at the table. So we're saying that in. Uh, our generation and above, not to age ourselves either, but uh, we have that struggle in having those conversations. Do you feel that in that coming future, these new generations are going to break that barrier of not struggling to communicate how you feel, what you want? I want to answer this one first. <laughs> so I have always believed that communication in any relationship is key, regardless of whether it's a long term or a one night stand. You should be having a solid communication before, during and after sex. You know, what worked, what didn't work, right? And you get your Amazon star reviews after, <laughs> after. Exactly. Exactly. We have these conversations, but, but is it going to get better in the long term? I would have to say no. Because from my experience, I, maybe it's with my heterosexual friends, but even at, at 30 years of age, I'm still telling them, my straight bros, my bro, I call them bros, okay, where to find the clitoris and that that needs to be stimulated. You know, and you know, it, why? Why at 30 years of age are you still looking for the clitoris? And, and who failed you? Yeah. What, like, what person, what education system, what class failed you? You know, so I haven't seen a good outlook. Now. Well, see, I think it depends on the partner and the person, right? I, I think that um, if you're any age after coming of age, we'll say, and you don't know that you know there's a clitoris you have a problem i mean i think that i used to say to the boys there's you know pee hole poop hole and a baby hole like a lot of people don't know there's three places down there so um i think that's the basic premise and understanding i think it's gotten better over age because i like not having to tell you where to go and what to do i you know just get me there thank you um but it's also that level of intimacy and communication. Mm -hmm. There's much different level of let's cuddle naked and just spoon naked has a different meaning or feeling potentially in your 40s and 50s than it does in your 20s and 30s. Like, hey, nobody's home. Let's go quick. One, two, three. Okay, good. You know, it might be a little bit different so now. But don't gig us and the older ones. I can't stand it when my sons are home at Christmas. I'm like, shit. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, like, who's home? Like, okay. You know what I mean? I'm like, let's leave the windows open so we could hear if the car is coming with the music. So that level of excitement doesn't change. But <laughs> it's a little harder if you need 30 minutes versus the 15. That so. <laughs> and as you were saying, there's that timing situation with age, right? There is uh, the different timing. I see on your notes that you took the idea of comparing hormone replacement ter therapy among women who have gone through menopause 
And how does that contrast with changes in men who, uh, according to the National Institute of Aging, the main concern with aging is erectile dysfunction. So how do we compare and contrast those two? Things, um, so not to say the name brand, but we all know, you know, the blue pill out there and having people that come to the office for me and, and wanna, I have 70 year olds that, oh, I need a refill on this, you know, prescription or whatever. I think there's some differences, but it really loops back to say like Planned Parenthood and birth control. So why is Viagra covered by insurance, but birth control is not? Why are maxi pads and tampons, you know, still taxed, um, but baby diapers are not? So some of those things, it's just when you talk about females as a second class citizen, it's not second class and we all vote so we all need to put things into place right. where it doesn't matter what my gender orientation is it should be equal i'm all about equity i don't care if you want gender affirming surgery to have breast tissue removed but i want it too if i if that's something i want mm -hmm. i i think it has to go both ways on across the field but a lot of people only want to stick to one one thing and politicize it um, so when I, I wrote notes, I mean, you were cheating looking at my notes, but, um, <laughs> just thinking about some of those things. So why is on commercials only Trojan condoms out there and lubrication? Let's not talk about coconut oil. You know, that will change your sex life, whatever age level you can buy it over the counter, you know, um, travel safely. It's not a problem. You could eat it and put it in your, um, food if you really wanted, but thinking about those things that helps on LGBTQ plus side, mm -hmm. heterosexual side, vaginal dryness, you know, other, <laughs> other uses. So it's just thinking about sexuality as a continuum versus a diet that we put it in, um, and realizing it doesn't necessarily change. Mm -hmm. Um, now, full disclosure to our listeners, coconut oil is an oil, so it's not water-based lubricant. So if you're using a condom, you should not, it will break. You should know, mix those two. All right, I've been married 33 years, haven't used a condom for a while, so thank you for that disclosure. But you, you brought up some really good points, uh, how, yeah, I, there should be equity between the sexes. I was going to say that... Oh, I lost it. So you should it. take your notes. I lost it. Oh, oh, uh, I was actually surprised by uh, one of our new advocates that joined. You know, she she brought up a good point, and that was, oh, I only thought prep was for men, and it's like, no, no, women, women can get on prep if they want. They, you know, it's it's to prevent catching HIV, and it's open to everyone. Correct. And it's a once a day pill, but now we also have injectable forms of PrEP. Pre PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we do have an episode coming up that will discuss some aspects about HIV prevention and all the re toolkits and resources that we have available in Central Florida. Now, I want to uh, give the last couple minutes that we have in the podcast to discuss a little bit about what are we doing in the communities, what resources are out there, and what amazing things our listeners can look forward from your organizations. I'll start with Bree. How about your efforts with Planned Parenthood Generation Action? Our RSO on campus, you can actually, we do a lot. We typically do events where we try to educate our 
uh, members, whether that's abortion stigma, healthy relationships, different forms of STD, STDIs, like safe sex practices all over. So we will have like events that promote those types of things as well as just networking. But a big thing that we do is that we try to advocate for Planned Parenthood as a whole. So we try to push the students towards Planned Parenthood. A lot of people don't know what Planned Parenthood does. Sometimes they just think, oh, they're just there for abortion. However, we're there for everything like STD, STI testing, overall health and wellness, discounted birth control, health care for the LGBTQ plus as well as non-binary individuals. We do it all. Um, even if you need like a blood test or any type of testing, we're here and we can help individuals who are uninsured or just confused overall of who they want to go to in terms of their health. And I hear most of your efforts focus within the UCF community on campus. Do you also do outreach um, outside the UCF campus? So specifically, Generation Action doesn't. However, personally, I do. So I'm actually a sex educator for Planned Parenthood of South and Central Florida through the peer education program. So the program actually just ended. It was a year-long program, and we were able to uh, learn a lot about STDs, STIs, uh, different types of birth controls. So individuals can join that program and they can learn everything that I learned. And through that, we help our community just by teaching the youth, anyone who has questions. So it was a really neat program. Wonderful. And it's very important to have a peer to peer, right? So when you identify with that provider, when you create that special link, that special bonding is, is important to actually listen and to actually follow advice. Yeah. If it's something that is antagonistic or is something that you cannot create that click, it, it definitely, I, my, my kudos to you for actually engaging in that program and, and doing that peer-to-peer -peer education. Now, speaking of peer-to-peer -peer education, Joel, can you tell our listeners a little more about Impulse and what does Impulse do in the community? Sure. So uh, like I said before, we are an advocacy group that focuses on sexual health, mental health, substance abuse, and social justice awareness. We originally started off as an HIV and AIDS advocacy group, but over the years we saw that we needed a kind of change with the times and to, to help our community. So we still do our quarterly HIV testing and that is done on purpose because you might have had sex last night and you come in and get tested today. You might not be reactive. So in three to six months um, at one of our other testing events, we can get you tested. You might come back positive. We'll send it to the Department of Health for a confirmatory test. Uh, which we actually do have a test. It, they're called testing for tickets. So we're testing you and you can win a chance to go see J Balvin, which is the last one we just gave out to. Uh, but uh, so that's on the sexual health side. But you and I collaborated on a, a mental health event, which was Let's Keep Healing Orlando. And we're going to be bringing that back again this June. Wonderful. And it's going to be bigger and better. We're going to be hosting it at the Ace Cafe. And so it's kind of like a reprieve from your day-to-day -day life. We provide you massage therapists, we provide you art therapy, bonsai tree making, teas, you know, and all of it is completely free. You just show up. Uh, so just, you know, relax for four hours. Yes. Um, and network. And also oh, for sure. Well, that that's the. The most important thing about our organization is because we don't have like an office in Orlando, we we 
teach all our advocates to be linkages for the community. Mm -hmm. So nine times out of 10, you're going to go to your friend about something going on with you sexually or a substance abuse issue. You know, they're going to trust you to tell you like, oh, I've been addicted to math for seven years, you know, and I've had that happen. And not one moment that I assumed they were ever doing any drug. Now, what we do and all my advocates is now we point you in the right direction. This is where you need to go. You know, if you're having a mental health crisis, go to the Mental Health Associates of Orlando or or, or go to peer support space. They have free um, therapy. So that's how we operate. And it's amazing. I love it. But if you want to find us, uh, just look for us on any social media platform under Impulse Group Orlando and we will reply to your messages. We will tell you how to show up to our meetings. And we are a big, diverse group of fun. Lovely. And we will leave those links to Impulse Group Orlando and Planned Parenthood Generation Action in our um, episode details. So our listeners can actually go ahead and follow those amazing organizations. Dr. Diaz, do you currently have any projects where people either can join research wise or if they're interested in clinical practice to come and see you? Absolutely. <laughs> So currently we have the Sensations for Life group. So they are embedded participants or real people that just add an element of humanness with our nursing students. Actually, we use them for nurse practitioner students as well. So it's a live person interacting with the mannequin. So for instance, we have a transgender simulation and Taylor Hermes is trans and he comes to the ER, but we might have his partner who's a live person in the room just to help create more realism. We currently need all kinds of volunteers, all different kinds of ages. We do a lot with a scenario with a baby daddy. So have a baby daddy in the room that's not connected with the mom birthing mannequin who's having an issue. So the dad's like, that's great, I don't care about her. How's my, my child? You know, it's we have to put our healthcare providers in a position where it's a stressful environment in the workplace. Um, we've seen the ramifications of people doing workarounds and things like that because what we educate in a silo and a, you know, kumbaya scenario isn't just what happens out there. So we need volunteers to help. You yourself, how has been your experience? You've played a, a baby daddy that was away. I have indeed. Uh, that was a very interesting experience because I was not there in person. So I know you're testing in you not to contaminate your results but i know you're testing an in-person versus a virtual Correct. that which with covid now we're seeing more and more often people on facetime people on zoom people on all these platforms being remote but also being present and it has been a very interesting experience at the end of the simulation not to give everything away but at the end of the simulation i have to ask your students you know i am a military dad i'm deployed i should be there in about 72 hours to meet my kid but how can i be more supportive of my partner from afar mm -hmm. and that's a question that typically throws them off they stutter a little bit and they try to think, you know, in put 
put themselves in the shoes of the patient. And I think that's important because they end up thinking, you know, you actually can be more supportive. Call off and check on the kid. Check out of the... Check out of the mother has postpartum blues, and that's important as well. They they actually come up with these solutions that are fascinating. It has been a great experience to our listeners out there. And if you're interested in volunteering for that simulation lab and train the generation, the future generations that are going to take care of us, please go ahead and contact Dr. Diaz. We will leave that contact information as well in the notes for this episode uh, so can i just share one of Please. our studies that we did Please it was it. actually published um we worked with social policy and justice on campus and we had people from the lgbtq plus community come in we had one trans male one trans female one cisgender and we used telehealth or in-person nurse practitioners to take a sexual health history. So, and how did the people from the LGBTQ plus community, did they prefer the telehealth or in-person? How did the providers feel comfortable being at a distance or in-person? So it was really interesting to see what, what came out of that. Some people in the LGBTQ plus really preferred the computer or the robot. And my personal feeling is, you know, there isn't that personal connection. So I could be totally open and honest. I might not ever see this robot person again. Which is easier to do. I think it relates back to social media, right? It's, it's yeah. easier to bring yourself behind a keyboard without, to have, without having to have that personal interaction, like the eyes on you. Yeah, so it, it's been a great experience. And anyone listening out there, if you have any, I have pseudo acting skills that I, uh, you know, um, but we we help. You mean, you mean they don't have to be professional <laughs> no. actors like me? No, you just like driving the robot, truth be told. But it, it's, a, it's a fun time. We'll welcome anyone. If you have a mom, dad, grandma at home who are bored. Um, I was going to say that I do this. People think it's for very altruistic reasons of training and helping the future generations. I actually do it for very selfish reasons. I do it because they have they are the generation who's going to take care of me and I want them trained the best way possible because I want the best care possible for myself. So even though you think it is for very, you know, helping my yeah, there's some of that, but it's very selfish. It's because I want the best care that I can get. So any last words of wisdom that we may be missing before I wrap up? Anything that we may have missed and like shout outs. I think you just said it. Wrap up. So, you know, before you hump, make sure you cover that stump. Just yes. saying. Yes. My, my last word is let's let's stand by our women. Let's let's give them all the rights that they deserve. And and let's enjoy sex. Make birth control free. I definitely agree. I will end on this note of always have safe sex <laughs> and have fun while have fun while doing it as well well i want to thank all three of our fantastic guests this has been a wonderful conversation hopefully we will have you again in new episodes that relate to human sexuality here in the sex cafe podcast this has been dr umberto lopez castillo your host and we look forward to new episodes <laughs>